once again, this is Paul Nobles from Eat to Perform. Hopefully all of you are kind of listening to these in order um, so that, you know, they kind of flow into one another. But I am Paul Nobles, co-founder of Eat to Perform. You can find us at www.eatperform.com and then you can talk to a coach about what a need to perform plan would look like for you. I'm here with lifelong uh, performance nutritionist, uh, performance dietitian, all these different um, designations. Uh, Susan Kleiner, Susan, can you talk to them and actually maybe clear up what I just said? <laughs> Yeah, so I have a PhD in nutrition and human performance. Uh, my, my business, my firm is High Performance Nutrition. And uh, you can find me at Dr. Susan Kleiner or Dr. S. Kleiner, D-R-S-K-L-E-I-N-E-R.com. And there you can find all the stuff that I do and where I'll be and the books that I've published, including The New Power Eating and The Good Mood Diet. And it's always fun to be here with Paul. So you were just telling a story. Why don't we go into that? Because I think that that's a great place to start. Um, because the way that things used to be done, especially as it relates to weightlifting and physique sports, is very different than the way that they do them now. So walk us through that. Yeah, thanks. So uh, in 1983, I started my PhD uh, and it ultimately was in nutrition and human performance because it was in the midst of those years that the term sports nutrition was born. I was looking at, uh, I was interested in the extreme of muscle building and studied uh, anabolic steroid and non-steroid using competitive nationally ranked uh, or state-ranked male bodybuilders. And today it still stands. It's the largest study, uh, nutrition study, 35 competitive athletes. There were 18 steroid users and 17 non. We did test them all. This was prior to any drug use and sports legal issues. Everyone brought in their shopping bags full of, of products. And as I said, the non-users, we did test them. And so um, it, we, we were clear on what everybody was doing. And it was the first diet study uh, using good um, nutritional methodology. And it's a seminal study published in 1987, maybe early 88, uh, in the Journal of the American College of Nutrition was the first publication. So what I found at that time, first of all, was the strategy of competitive male bodybuilders at that time. And I did go on to study women um, right after that. But this point was that they were eating a ton from, from the, the bantamweight athlete all the way up to the heavyweight athletes, but the heavyweight athletes certainly outdoing the bantamweights by thousands of calories a day. They were overfeeding themselves by huge margins to gain as much really as they could, knowing that with every pound they gained, they, they gained muscle, but they also gained fat the way they were you know, doing their diets and often would gain even 50 pounds of fat that had to then be lost when they got 
close to competitive season four months out. They'd go on highly restrictive dieting regimens to diet down to competitive physique. And so what we learned over time is that number one, that's not necessary. Number two, it's not good for their hearts. It's not good for their health long-term. They were eating it wasn't unusual for an athlete to be eating 100 plus or 300 uh, grams of fat a day. Uh, we give that kind of dosage puts people sometimes in the hospital. I mean, that's a lot of fat a day. Uh, it was coming in through a gallon of whole milk, many, many pounds of red meat, a dozen eggs, and just huge fat intakes to get their calories up. And they would have these massive fat gains to get the muscle that they wanted, and then they would restrict down. And so that's kind of the story. So the, that history lingers. There is a shadow of that sort of memory that, well, if I'm lifting to be and want to be anabolic and want to build muscle like crazy, I need to eat a ton of food and a ton of calories. And some of that is, is no longer necessary, nor is it good science. Yeah. And so just to kind of step in here, you know, when we're talking about 10,000 calories and things of this nature, and, and some of that still, like you said, does still exist. And it's also not completely wrong, right? Right. You're Depends. going to need a surplus, right, right. to build muscle. And so when we talk about total daily energy expenditure, it was interesting because I reached out to Herman and he didn't actually get back to me. Um, but I, I wanted to talk to him a little bit about, you know, the constrained totally, total daily energy expenditure because it's similar to what we see at each perform, right? That there, there is a number where it's not particularly advantageous necessarily in terms of... Uh, uh, performance, right? Um, so like, just because you're eating 5,000 as opposed to 4,000 does not necessarily mean that performance um, got better. The advantage, of course, is that you could potentially gain more muscle with that level of a surplus. But like you're saying, that can also be overdone, right? And so anytime you're you're introducing any kind of outside force like a steroid or something of that nature, you know, you have to, you have to be careful. Um, but what we consistently see is that, you know, we talk about the, in the other podcast, we talked about 2000, 2700, you know, I myself eat about 3,500 a day. Um, and we'll push up to 4,000 on my super day. I'm not particularly um, active, but I'm probably much more active than the average person. And right now, you know, most of my cardio, I keep bringing this up every podcast is coming from pickleball. Um, you know, my wife and I actually play together. We don't play as much doubles. I don't know if you're familiar with the sport, but like doubles, you don't move near as much. Right. You know, um, but what's interesting about, uh, you know, I have a whoop, so it measures my activity level and two hours of, of pickleball, even playing doubles, 
is is equivalent or better than a CrossFit workout, as an example, right? Um, and so, so I think that better that, better in in what parameter? Uh, it's called strain. That's how they measure it, uh -huh. right? And so um, it always does default to cardio is better, right? Um, but when we talk about total daily energy and ex expenditure and constrained energy expenditure, when you eat above that, you're not necessarily going to gain weight per se, um, but that is what's going to put you into a slight surplus. When we look at the way that we undulate the days um, with eat reform, what we're actually trying to do is allow your body to be in a little bit of a surplus every now and again, right? And a little bit of a deficit every now and again. And so when Susan talks about some of the new science compared to, you know, just kind of gaining 50 pounds, that's a little bit of the new science, right? Is um, cycling so that you don't just gain an extreme amount of weight through that process. Also, I'm assuming that in that process, cardio was a big no-no. Oh, right? never. Right. You yeah, melt right. away. Yeah. Yeah. And then meanwhile. Or that um, was the assumption was you'd melt away. I'm not saying that you would. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and what you often saw, right, was that many of the athletes, I mean, first of all, you know, any kind of anabolic steroid is not going to be favorable for your heart. Right. And then you don't do cardiovascular. So, you know, many of these athletes pass away around 50, you right. know, right. Um, and to this day, that's still problematic because, you know, the steroids have gotten better, um, even though the nutrition piece um, has also gotten better. Right. Yeah, and, but um, the, and the other thing is, though, just to, to put a plug in for strength training uh, and weightlifting is that the athletes who were eating similarly, but not using steroids. This was the first documentation that they actually looked pretty darn healthy and they didn't do any cardiovascular training. And so, uh, you know, uh, it, it, now we know that lifting is also good for your heart and good for your bones and good. And that's what I documented with the women and they had low calcium diets. And so there's, um, you know, there's just a whole lot of great stuff around strength training um, that is really healthy for you. But yeah, mixing, mixing um, anabolic steroids, uh, poor diet, very high in saturated fat, and no cardiovascular training um, is very unhealthy for your well, heart. And, and, and another, you know, just kind of on as an aside, you know, um, for a year I trained at a powerlifting gym and, um, virtually, I mean, this is world-class powerlifters, right. That people right. know really well. Um, and that are on cover of magazines and stuff like this. Well, those athletes, um, all had a bodybuilding picture, every single one of them, you know? And so what happened was, is eventually, they didn't want to go through the diet cycles. They didn't want to be judged, you know, 12th, you know, um, when they worked so hard for that physique and they found that they got a lot more joy out of powerlifting. And there were certainly some of the powerlifters that just got 
big, you know, um, somewhat with the formula that you right. described, but the best weren't like that. The best, you would always see the best being the first one there. And then often the last one and still doing reps, they weren't doing like, you know, 10 reps and anything over 10 reps for the whole session was cardio. Um, they would be doing a lot of volume, a lot of, a uh, lot of traditional bodybuilding stuff so they could get their um, frame up. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting kind of having that experience and sort of comparing it to, to the cardio folks. What I think is scary about the cardio side of things, especially for um, the really, you know, I've graduated from 5Ks to 10Ks to marathons to ultra marathons to, you know, triathlons and all these different things. Oftentimes the nutrition doesn't keep up to speed, right? And, and they go from somebody that was maybe doing that to manage their weight to now wondering why, you know, they don't have abs, but they work out all the time. And there's all these sort of negative messages that come with that. When those athletes are appropriately fed, more often than not, they don't have that kind of thought process, right? Because naturally it's a little bit better. Now, I will say this. I don't know many um, triathletes, ultramarathoners, even, even serious marathoners that don't do some resistance training, especially in the off season. Oh, there's a ton um, of cross training. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other, because you, you're going to lose muscle, right? You know, with that amount of volume, right. right? Now, what's interesting about the muscle loss is they tend to gain it back very quickly. So, you know, you do kind of wonder how much of that is tissue and how much of that is a little bit dehydration and things of that nature, right? Where you know, just the volume takes so much out of you. But, but the change, you know, if you think about the value of, of exercise is going to typically be very positive for insulin sensitivity. And so as your body is able to handle, let's say carbohydrate better and protein better, you're going to synthesize things a little bit better. And if your body is sort of restricted or maybe in a deficit because of the volume, it does allow them to kind of get some of that volume back a little bit better. Right. Um, obviously, it's a case by case, but but it is always interesting to see that that those people become very, very lean. Well, and, and it is genetic. I mean, it, it, so people who are really good at running typically uh, have a certain body type um, and and people who are really successful power lifters have a different kind of body type. And so if they were a power lifter and then they, and, and a power lifter is probably not a good example, perhaps, you know, maybe a, a physique competitor um, and real size of being, being the object, a bodybuilder um, is a better example. That person then becoming a super gifted runner is usually not typical, although, some people can make that crossover. They're just, you know, the genetics of their muscle uh, fibers is just 
interesting and more unique. But, but, but the person who was not such a successful lifter or bodybuilder that then transitions to a distance athlete, probably, and, and body, and, and you do, your body changes. It's sports-specific training, and your body will adjust to the training. You may have been more genetically inclined to the running than you were the lifting. And so your body is changing and adapting to really what it's best at. So those are, those are all possibilities. Yeah. And I think the other thing too, that, that um, people get caught up in is the idea that, that eating less and doing more is going to be favorable for their physique. You know, this couldn't be farthest from the truth, right? The, the people with the best physiques, like we were just talking about, if a professional bodybuilder, you know, do have the most muscle and tend to do the least cardio, right? Doesn't mean you, you don't do any or anything of this nature, but I think that, you know, there's a lot of folks that aren't doing, you know, that maybe are, are a little bit too much on the side of, of cardio, right? And then frustrated that they don't have the right physique. Right. Um, but there, there I, is a balance because I you, have hold, to- Hold on, yeah, I, I, go need, ahead. I, I just need to say one thing. Okay, go ahead. That's what happened to me right? Is that I got too small. And so, you know, you would look at images and you would see, well, this is what 8% looks like, you know, well, it only looks like that if you have that amount of muscle, right? And so once I, you know, got to a certain weight, um, really almost over exercising, I actually had to build back a lot of that muscle. And then now, you know, my, my torso is very, very different. It was very flat at that point. Yeah. And now, you know, I mean, right now I only have like a strong two pack, but, but <laughs> it wouldn't take, it wouldn't take much for me to, to get to that six pack. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think I really want the problems that it would take to get an eight pack. Yeah. So, but so, you know, just to, to make the point for the, you know, for strength training and the conditioning side of strength training is that I, um, you know, used to, I, I never was a marathoner, but I, I used to love to run half marathons and I had some plantar fasciitis issues and now I'm just starting again. But back when I was running half marathons quite slowly, <laughs> I was never winning anything. It was really about the fun and fitness of it and the joy of running. I had um, a world-class client, a bodybuilder man, um, and he used to run, we, we ran a half marathon together and it was great because my pace was his pace and we were, when we had a lot of fun. But, but today, as you said, um, to be best at whatever you're doing, you're not just doing one unidirectional training, you are cross training. And so feeding yourself to be able to, to do multi function use of your muscles and your connective tissues uh, is super important and your balance and your eye hand coordination and all of that, that requires fuel because 
you're not nearly as highly trained in one direction as you may be in another. And, and the less trained you are, the more fuel it takes and it, over um, the same period of time. Of course, the longer you do something, the more fuel you use. So, so that's one really um, good example. And the other is another uh, competitive uh, bodybuilder who was 50 plus category in age that I worked with who was doing quite well and then thought, well, I'll do better if I restrict more. And he um, started on a ketogenic diet and his, his body really tanked. Um, it's clear that his own production of testosterone went down to very low levels. And I have pictures of him that I had posted years ago and he has posted as well uh, of him. And they may be in the new power eating photos of this as well. He, he lost weight, but he shrunk down to nothing, just like what you're talking about. He went down to a very low percent body fat, but he looked horrible. And then we added back a whole lot of carbs, got him way away from the ketogenic diet. And he just looked incredible. And he went on to win two um, championships back to back uh, for his age group. And so the idea of restriction, a, a dramatic restriction, getting you to where you want to go for a short period of time, when it comes to physique competitions, it actually is almost necessary, I'm going to be honest, um, but, but we're talking about weeks, a few weeks, and hopefully never more than that. And, and for the rest of the time, you wanna be the most that you can be, not the least. Right, and, and, and that's actually one of the, the issues, I mean, other than hydration and fueling your muscles and things of this nature, bodybuilding does require a certain amount of volume. Like when you were talking about um, cardio as an example, or bodybuilders that maybe aren't using conditioning as part of their programming, there is, you know, some health benefits from the, um, the reps themselves, right? You're going to get some level right, of, of uh, increase as it relates to your heart and then if you don't know this, this is sort of how bodybuilding works. Um, they will work through the sets for, you know, the lats or biceps or something of this nature. And for the most part, they're going to try and get down to kind of a resting heart rate before the next set. So a lot of times, you know, these workouts are four to five times a week for two to three times. Sometimes people are doing like double that. When you're not fueling that work, you're just not going to get the same result as somebody who is fueling that work. And we talked about this a little bit with like boxing and MMA and stuff in the last one. But um, bodybuilding is real similar in this regard. What, you're, what you see now is that bodybuilders try to stay roughly within 10 to 15 pounds, I would say five to 10 pounds for women of their stage weight. Right. And then, and then their diet cycles are, you know, they tend to be pretty aggressive, you know? Um, I will say one criticism that I do have, especially for natural bodybuilders is 
that they tend to um, gravitate way more to the diet side than they do. Like for instance, the whole the whole sports name bodybuilding, right? And yet, you know, we're not doing enough on the building side. So I, I'll talk to like, you know, natural bodybuilders who are trying to get to a stage and they're not in like stage prep, right? Right. Um, and and they're eating 2,500, 2,700 calories. And it's like, you, you right. don't know the basic of your own sport, right? you know? And, and that, that's the problem with like trying to figure it out from magazines, you know? And so we try to stay away from physique athletes in general, because one, you know, well, I've said this many times, um, that, you know, if you show me one with a good relationship with food, that'll be the first one I ever saw. Right. It really does take a toll on you. And you have to understand that. And if you use it as a way of kind of controlling weight, you're sort of missing the point of how you're going to do well. And then, you know, the whole judging aspect, I think, is really difficult for a lot of people. Um, But it's going to be especially difficult for you if you don't understand the basics of how your body needs to be fueled to build muscle. Right. And so so that's why I think, you know, we tend to stay a little bit more gen pop. But I do think that when you look at the core of eat reform, the core of what we're doing, we learned a lot of this from those studies that Susan's talking about, right? And you're benefiting from much of that. And so I think that when we look at how all of this stuff gets discovered, people want to put themselves in a box over here or a box over here And the reality is most of us are actually somewhat fine. Now, Susan was talking about earlier where genetically you might be predisposed to be a stronger weightlifter and some people are going to be more predisposed to being being a runner. But really a lot of the value is in kind of that middle place or finding a good balance for what your goals are long-term. So hopefully this was, was helpful Um, I think we covered a lot, but the reality of performance nutrition, as long as you're feeding yourself, you're going to do a lot better. Food will take you much farther. And that's even in the case where you're trying to get to a level of lean where you can kind of see it in the mirror, right? Food will just take you much farther than eating less ever could, right? And so hopefully that helps. Susan, I'll give you the the last word. I just, you know, want to put a plug in for the last uh, recording. I think I put a plug in for the joy of physical exercise and movement. I wanna give a second plug to the joy of eating um, and, and, and how important that is for all of us. And um, when we think about limiting everything all the time, food is such an intimate part of our lives at every point in our lives. That, that I think we, when we are so focused on limiting and restriction, we, we lose the joy of eating and sharing and, and the nourishment and the, and, and the ability to develop relationships when we share food. So, um, so lo- allow yourself to enjoy 
eating and, and, um, and the tastes and the flavors and the experience of, uh, and the sensory part of the fulfillment of, of eating so that you do find satisfaction and happiness from eating rather than um, having it be uh, a, a mentally stressful time, everything you, time you think about food. And try to do it with other people. I mean, we've all been alone. It's all taken a real toll on us. And so, you know, it's just so important. There's one of the coaches, you know, I know I said I'd give you the last word, so, but I'm going to take the last word because <laughs> there's... Because um, it's your podcast. <laughs> well, the, um, I don't know. I think, I think most of the people kind of like your advice a little bit more. But, um, you know, there's kind of this, it's a diet, it's a lifestyle, or it's not a diet, it's a lifestyle. A lot of times that ends up being interpreted very rigidly. Um, there is this uh, this saying that one of our coaches um, she says, it's not a diet, it's a life. Um, and then the style is crossed out. And I want everybody to really feel that, you know, that, that the concepts, the basic ideas that Susan's been writing about all her for life and, and that was the foundation of Eat to Perform um, we have exploded in the last two years. And the reason why we've exploded in the last two years is because I'm, we're doing a better job of getting that message out there. And it's very important that within all the little micro goals that we have, that we, we really focus on that bigger picture that is great for joy, great for mental health, and that allows us to to perform and do amazing things as human beings, right? To whatever ability you have. All right, I appreciate you being here and doing this with us, Susan, that was a lot of fun. Thanks, Paul. Talk to you later, bye now.